The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We're going to be looking this morning at Understanding Scripture, Part 2. I didn't plan on doing a Part 2, but things changed this week. Uh, last week I said, if, if we're going to understand the Bible, we have to have some understanding of hermeneutics. Now, we said last week hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. The purpose of hermeneutics is to establish guidelines and rules for interpreting the Bible. Because any written document is subject to misinterpretation. So we have developed rules to help us safeguard for misunderstanding the Scripture. Now, God has spoken, and what He said is recorded in Scripture. And the basic need of hermeneutics is to ascertain, what did He mean by what He said? The primary rule of hermeneutics is what? Very good class. The analogy of faith... That means Scripture interprets Scripture. That means no part of Scripture can be interpreted in such a way as to render it in conflict with what is clearly taught elsewhere in Scripture. The analogy of faith is a safeguard that would help us from reading into Scripture something that's not there. Under the principle of the analogy of faith, I brought up a principle that I believe is vital to understanding Scripture. It's not really part of hermeneutics. Uh, per se, in this directed like this, but the Bible is one book. This means that you can't unhitch the Old Testament from your Bible. We actually need it. The second rule of hermeneutics that we talked about last time was audience relevance. This means that whatever a passage meant, or whatever word spoken in Scripture meant, it meant or had direct application to the original intended audience. That seems... Simple and logical, doesn't it? Yet, this is a principle that is so missed and just throws off your understanding of the Bible. It's not written to us, it's written for us, it's written to the people that he actually wrote to. Now, my third point last week was, in understanding Scripture, was it takes a lot of time and hard work. All right, You have to be willing to put some time in, you have to be willing to do a little work to understand the Scripture. And yet... I think so many Christians are lazy and very casual in their approach to study. They want to understand it, but they don't want to put the work in. All right, it, We're in an instant society, you want everything and you want it right now. Well, the Bible is a, a pretty vast book, and so understanding of it, first of all, takes understanding the principles of hermeneutics and then putting some work in so you can understand it. And let me tell you, the most important thing you can do in this realm is to read through the Bible every year. Okay, it's like a 15 to 30 minute commitment, depend on your you know, reading level. But 30 minutes a year, I mean 30 minutes a day, well, yeah, the year, no. He, you'd have to be a really fast reader to do that, but 30 minutes a day will take you through the whole Bible a year, and then next year you do it again, and you do it again, and you'll be amazed that every year you'll be learning something. Well, for our study this morning, I want to go back to the principle that we talked about last week. The fact that the Bible is one book. Because I really think that most Christians ignore or neglect what they call the Old Testament. Now, if you've listened to me for any length of time, you know that I don't like to call it the Old Testament. I call it the Tanakh. And I call it that because that's what the Jews call it. And the Tanakh is an acronym that identifies the Hebrew Bible. The acronym is based on the initial Hebrew letters of each of the text's three parts, the Torah, Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. We know that the Tanakh is important because Yeshua said that it spoke of Him. And that's why we're reading the Bible. We're reading to get to know our God. In John 5.39, Yeshua told the Jews, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness to Me. Now by Scripture here, it means the Tanakh. That's the only Bible anybody in the New Testament ever had. Scripture, he says, bears witness of me. In other words, we're going to see Yeshua all through the Tanakh if we're paying attention. 
And one of the many passages that demonstrate the deity of Christ is found in the fourth gospel in John chapter 12, where Lazarus quotes from Isaiah 6. John 12, 39 and 40 says, Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, and then he's going to quote Isaiah, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I will heal them. Now this is Isaiah 6.10, but if you know the context of Isaiah, you know what's going on here. Well, let's back up and get the context in 6.1-3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called to another and said, Holy! Holy, holy is Yahweh of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So this is a throne room scene. He sees Yahweh sitting on His throne. The divine council is there with Him in this scene. Isaiah is given this magnificent vision of the glory of God to remind him of the fact that though Uzziah had just died, and though great kings of the earth all die, Yahweh is still on the throne. This is a great passage to go to when you feel like your world has fallen apart. You've got to remember that God's still on the throne. He hasn't left. Nobody's knocked Him off the throne. Nobody's defeated Him. He's still there. and He's still ruling. He's still controlling. So everything will be okay. It is in Yahweh and Him alone that our faith is to truly rest. Now John goes on to say, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, he, Isaiah, saw his glory and spoke of him. The him here is referring to Yeshua. And we learn here for the first time that the vision of God in Isaiah 6 was none other than Christ himself. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter 6. This is itself an affirmation that Yeshua is God, for it is clearly God whom Isaiah saw in the vision. The glory of God in that vision, which Isaiah saw and reported, was the glory of Yeshua. Now, that's amazing that we learn these things from the Tanakh. It bears witness to Christ. It teaches us of who He is. Now, Paul said that he was teaching nothing but what was in the Tanakh. And this should show us just how important the Tanakh is for our understanding. Now, last week, I said, apart from understanding the Tanakh, you will never completely understand the New Testament. Because the writers of the New Testament all supposed that their readers understood the Tanakh. And much of the language of the New Testament is drawn from the Tanakh. So if you want to understand it, You get familiar with the Tanakh. Now, what I want to do this morning is to further illustrate, because I think this is really important, I want to illustrate how important it is to know the Tanakh in order to correctly understand and interpret Scripture. The New Testament. And we could do this from a lot of different places in the New Testament because the New Testament quotes the Tanakh constantly. Anybody know what book in the New Testament quotes the most verses from the Tanakh? What? Revelation. Revelation. It's the most biblical book there is. It quotes continually from the Tanakh. But what I want to do this morning is I want to focus on John 10. And I want to focus on Yeshua as the Good Shepherd. I want you to see what Yeshua says in this context, this Good Shepherd context, comes from the Tanakh. Now again, his readers know this. His readers understand the Tanakh. They don't have a New Testament. So when he says these things, they're going back and they're understanding where he's drawing from. In John 10, most of the imagery comes from Ezekiel 34 and 37. But John begins the chapter by using Numbers 27. Now before we look at how Yeshua uses these passages from the Tanakh, Let me set some context for you on John chapter 10. In the first four chapters of the Gospel of John, we see very little opposition to Yeshua's teaching. 
In fact, he's gaining in popularity. The people are liking him. I mean, this is great. He's teaching them. Well, you come to chapter 5, and Yeshua was accused by the Jewish leaders of making himself equal with God. And he responded to this accusation by saying, I am equal to God in every way. Now, of course, that didn't win him any points there. And chapter 6 opens with Yeshua's popularity at its height. Large crowds are following him. They're wanting to make him their king. But by the end of the chapter, the crowds have forsaken him because they can't handle his teaching any longer. So they leave. Now chapter 7 opens with the Jews seeking to kill him. And from here on to the end of his public ministry, we see a steadily deepening of this hostility. In chapter 8, Yeshua gets into another confrontation with the leaders of Israel, and he says to them, you are of your father the devil. Now that didn't go over real well, as you can imagine. And the end of the chapter says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, and Yeshua hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, on his way out of the temple, chapter 9 comes into play, and Yeshua sees a blind man who's been blind from birth. He stops and he heals the man. And it was the Sabbath. So the religious leaders were furious that Yeshua healed on the Sabbath. You know, this is, this is the blindness that, that happens to people, okay? This is the blindness of people without the Lord, okay? 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, neither is he able to. These people, these Jewish leaders are natural. They don't have the Spirit, so they don't get it. Yeshua had just healed a man that was blind from birth. This guy's got eyes. He can see now. That's an incredible thing. You think they'd be saying, wow, this is pretty good. Who is this that's doing this? You know what else? They knew from their Scriptures that Messiah, when He came, would heal the blind. And yet here Yeshua is claiming to be Messiah. He heals people. And they're like, let's kill him. They didn't get it. Because they couldn't get it. Because the natural man is blind to the things of God. Even with seeing the things they saw. Christianity is not natural, people. It is supernatural. And it starts with the new birth that is an act of God. Alright, that brings us to chapter 10. And let me just say here that chapter 10, the break is not helpful. Because 10, 1 through 21 is really a commentary on the conflict that we see in chapter 9. In chapter 9, again, we have this healing of the blind man, blind from birth. Yeshua heals him physically. And as a result of that experience, the blind man deals with the people, he deals with his neighbors, he deals with his parents, and particularly with the Pharisees. And he's brought to, by Yeshua to the place where he confessed, Lord, I believe. He sees who Yeshua is, and he worships him. It's a remarkable picture. This man's physical healing led to his spiritual healing, and he trusts Christ. Now, the healed man has been treated pretty badly by the religious authorities. He was even thrown out of the synagogue. Now, today with our Western eyes, we find it hard to grasp the profound impact of being thrown out of the synagogue. But to them, you know, it's not like us. You get kicked out of a church, oh, big deal. There's another one right across the street. There's one right next to that, and there's one right next to that. But to be kicked out of the synagogue meant you were disfellowshipped. You couldn't do business with those people anymore. You couldn't buy, you couldn't sell, you couldn't hang out with. You, you were cut off. So it was a big deal to be kicked out of the synagogue. That was life for them. The person would become an outsider. They were rejected by their own community. Not once did the Jewish leaders rejoice over the amazing fact that this man was blind from birth, but now he can see. His eyes had been healed and open. But they were more concerned that Yeshua had violated their man-made legalistic Sabbath rules than there were about a man who had been miraculously healed. And chapter 9 ends this way. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Yeshua said to them, If you were blind, and he's talking physically, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. So this exchange makes it clear that the shepherd discourse that follows begins as a polemic 
against the leaders of Israel. That's what's happening with the shepherd thing in chapter 10. He's confronting the leaders of Israel. Yeshua says that many thieves and robbers destroy the sheep. And he's referring to this blind man who's one of the sheep and they're attacking him. They're kicking him out of the synagogue for this. While the good shepherd, he says, leads his own out from the sheep pen and into his own flock. The thematic as well as the linguistic connection of these two chapters is really strong. Now, the discourse of John 10 is the culmination of the controversy over Yeshua's identity in John 7 through 10. 7 through 10, they're arguing, who is this? This guy says he's this. Who is this guy? Well, in this chapter, Yeshua makes it clear to the Pharisees who he is by drawing on text from the Tanakh that they would have known. So he's making it real clear who he is. They're still not going to get it because they're natural. John 10, 1 and 2 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now, you're probably familiar with this passage. We know that Yeshua is the shepherd of the sheep. You probably heard teaching on this passage. And most teaching on this passage will deal with sheep, what a sheepfold was like, what it meant to be a, 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 a herder, a sheep herder, a shepherd back in that day. And they go into that kind of thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what I want you to see this morning is there's much, much more in this text that we're going to miss if we don't understand what's going on in the Tanakh. Now, as I said earlier, the beginning of John 10 is drawn from Numbers chapter 27. Now, if you're comparing Numbers 27 in the Septuagint, that's the Greek Old Testament. That's the Greek translation of the Tanakh. All right? The Septuagint. And if you compare that with the Greek of John 10, you're going to see that there's a lot of shared vocabulary in John 10, 1 through 18, and Numbers 27. Numbers 27, 16, and 17 says, Let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of Yahweh may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Now the Septuagint of Numbers 27 has the same words for sheep and shepherd that you find here in John 10, but it goes much further than that. Verse 3 says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Numbers 27, again, he talks about leading them out. You have the same idea, calling the sheep, in John 10 and in Numbers 27. There's a lot of shared vocabulary in these two texts. All right, Now, you're not going to pick this up just by casually reading it. Okay, You've got to dig into it a little bit to, to see this stuff. But the people who he was talking to got this. They understood it. They knew these texts. Now, let me pull something out of you, verse 3 here that I think is important before we... Go back to the doc here. He says he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. There's a lot of doctrine here in this analogy. This is divine sovereignty. This is irresistible grace. This is the effectual calling. This is all theological. What is our Lord saying here? He's giving us the theology of salvation. The good shepherd has already chosen his sheep. Look at He calls his own sheep. The sheep belong to him. He calls them by name and he leads them out. He's already named them. He knows who they are. He possesses full authority and sole authority to come into Judaism, to come into the nations of the world and the countries of the world and to find his sheep. He knows them. He calls them by name. They recognize his voice and they follow him. And they're not going to follow a stranger, he tells us. All right, let's go back to Numbers 27. What are the verses in Numbers 27 that John alludes to? What are they talking about? Well, these verses are about Moses praying for a successor. Let's look at the context here. Numbers 27, 12 through 18. Yahweh said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim, and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people. What's that mean? You're going to die. Go up in the mountain. 
This is pretty incredible when you think about it, because Moses goes up this mountain, and then he dies. Okay? Have you ever climbed a mountain? And I'm not talking about rappelling. I'm just talking about switchbacks or just climbing a hill. You know how difficult it is. Here's This is a pretty old guy here climbing up this hill, and he gets up there, and the God says it's time, and he just dies. Great way to go. Okay? Not sick. He's not disabled. He just, the Lord says, it's your time. All right? Why? Why was it his time? He says, you're going to die as your brother Aaron was because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled. Moses disobeyed God, and so God is disciplining him. Failing to uphold me as holy in the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to Yahweh, saying, Let Yahweh, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation. So Moses is going to die. And he says, okay, God, we need to appoint another man to lead this congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them. That's shepherd terminology. You go out and you come in. Who shall lead them out and bring them in that the congregation of Yahweh may not be sheep that have no shepherd. Alright, so he doesn't want them to be without a shepherd. They need a shepherd. So Yahweh said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So who's Moses' replacement going to be? Joshua. What is the name Joshua in Hebrew? Yeshua. Hmm, interesting. A point... Who? Lord, we need a replacement. Let it be Yeshua. Yahweh saves. By using this passage, Yeshua is telling His audience that He is the new Yeshua. He is there to lead the people in, to lead them out, to be the shepherd. He's the one that Moses prayed for. The new shepherd of Israel, He's saying, is here. Now, the sheep and the shepherd language in John 10 actually originates with the change of leadership from Moses to Yeshua. And so he's using this, and they say, oh, Numbers 27, Moses prayed for someone. He's saying this is him. He's claiming to be the shepherd alluded to in Numbers 27. Yeshua then goes from his successor language in Numbers 27, and he goes on to Ezekiel 34, which is the prophecy of Ezekiel against the shepherd's of Israel. John 10:6. This figure of speech Yeshua used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. People get that. They just don't get it. They can't get it. They're blind. They're dead in trespasses and sin. Now listen, in spite of all their knowledge of the Tanakh, the Pharisees don't get it. And there's some people teaching today that you don't need the Spirit, you just need to understand the Bible and you can be saved. You can't understand the Bible. I mean, you can understand it in the sense of the historical and other thing about it, but you cannot become a Christian until the Lord moves in your life. They can't hear the voice of God. They can't hear the voice of the Great Shepherd because they're not His sheep. Now, in verses 7-18, through 18, Yeshua, in John, Yeshua shifts from third person the one who, he, him, his, to the first person singular, I and me. And he makes it very clear that from here on, he is speaking of himself as the good shepherd. Yeshua describes himself in verses 7-10 through 10 as the door of the sheep. So Yeshua again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He's the only way they get in. All who came before me, He's talking about the people that he's dealing with, the Jewish leaders right there. All that came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep don't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now he is saying something here. He is doubly defending 
proclaiming his deity in this verse. He's identifying himself with the significant words, first of all, I am, he says. That's ego eimi in the Greek, which reminds us of Yahweh's revelation of himself to Moses in Exodus 3, where he says, I am who I am. Ehia, asher ehia in the Hebrew. I am who I am. And here Yeshua says, I am. He declares to be the I am of the Tanakh, the one who is the beginning and the end, the one who is the first and the last, the one who is the Aleph Tav. I am He, He says. So when the Jews heard the Lord Yeshua say, I am, they couldn't help but reflect that He is making a claim to deity. And He not only says that He's the I am, He also says that He is the Good Shepherd. Now the shepherd concept was part of God's self-revelation in the Tanakh. And Yeshua's use of sheep imagery in John 10 has a strong background in the Tanakh. So let me say it again, apart from understanding the Tanakh, you'll never completely understand the New Testament. Because the writers of the New Testament all suppose that their readers understood the Tanakh. And if we don't understand the language of the first three quarters of the Bible, we're going to struggle with understanding the New Testament. Because that language is all drawn from the first three quarters. So Yeshua uses the imagery of the Good Shepherd which should be understood in light of the passages in the Tanakh that criticize Israel's shepherds who have failed to do their duty. Yeshua, as I said, is drawing upon Ezekiel 34 in his uh, metaphorical use of sheep language here. And the background of Ezekiel 34 is especially important for John 10, 1-18. Ezekiel describes Israel as God's flock and the rulers as shepherds. And rather than feeding the sheep, the rulers alternatively ignore the flock and actually prey upon them instead of protecting them. As a result, the flock is scattered and destroyed by wild animals. The false shepherds will be removed from their position of leadership and God will again be the shepherd of His people. He will gather them and lead them to good pasture. He will appoint a shepherd over them from David's line and bring peace to the flock. Ezekiel 34 is a clear description of the way Yeshua portrayed Himself as the Good Shepherd. Let's look at Ezekiel. The word of Yahweh came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourself, should should not shepherds feed the sheep? So this is a prophecy against the leaders, against the priesthood, against their shepherds. They were not teaching the flock. They were not caring for the flock. They were in it for themselves. You can make a comparison here, I think, between our political climate and them. Okay, Our politicians are supposed to be servants of the people. Instead, they're serving themselves and getting rich off the people. The text goes on, you eat the fat, you clothe yourself with the wool, You slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. In other words, the priesthood failed to feed God's people spiritually. Therefore, the people became weak in their faith and some were even lost to the covenant. It goes on in verse 7 to say, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, declares Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, 
that they may not be food for them. So again, this is a judgment against the leaders of Israel. They're not shepherding the sheep. Now in verses 11 through 16, Yahweh makes three promises to his people. In verses 11, Yahweh promises that he will care for his sheep. For thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now I want you to notice here, who is speaking? It is Yahweh. Yahweh says, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will seek them out. I will rescue them. We got that? Yahweh speaking here, right? Clearly it's Yahweh. But in John 10, Yeshua makes the claim that He, as God in the flesh, is the one fulfilling this. He was telling those Jews that He was Yahweh. Because they knew Psalm 23 that says, Yahweh is my shepherd. They knew Psalm 80 where Yahweh is referred to as the shepherd of Israel. So when Yeshua says, I am the good shepherd, he is announcing his deity. And by using the tetragrammaton, I am, and by claiming to be the good shepherd, it's a double claim to deity. Both the I am and the shepherd refer to Yahweh. Yeshua is telling them, and he's telling us, that he is Yahweh in the flesh. And again, you miss this if you don't understand the text he's using. In verse 13, he promises to bring them back from where they had been scattered. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall their great be their grazing land. And so he says, I'm going to bring them back to their own land. They're scattered. Because of their sin, they're scattered. But God has promised them, I'm going to bring you back. He says, there they shall lie down in good grazing land. And on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep. So again, Yahweh is talking here. I'm going to be the shepherd. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord Yahweh. So he is going to be the shepherd. He's going to be the one. Now in verse 16, he promises to be a true shepherd to his people. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Now here Yahweh is saying, I'm going to seek the lost. Does that sound familiar to you? You know of anybody else that said something like that? Yeshua quotes this verse when He was talking to Zacchaeus. In Luke 19.10. Watch, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So Yahweh says in Ezekiel 34, I will seek the lost. Then Yeshua comes along and says, the Son of Man has come and seek to save the lost. By using that phrase, knowing that the people knew Scripture, Yeshua is saying to them, I'm Yahweh in the flesh. I'm Israel's shepherd, Savior. This is another strong declaration of the deity of Christ. But you won't get it if you don't know the text he's referring to. Alright, back to Ezekiel. 21-24. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. I will judge between sheep and sheep. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Now remember, David is gone at this time, okay? David is dead, but he is saying because Yeshua is the fulfillment of the prophecy the David, the shepherd that will be over them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am Yahweh. I have spoken. So God promised that the day will come when He will raise up the Messiah, the branch, from the line of King David, and He will reign as King uniting Israel and Judah. 
Now, the Old Covenant people understood from this passage that the shepherd chosen by God to be, would be the promised Messiah would come from the family, come from the line of the great King David. It goes on to say, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish the wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places all around my hill a blessing. I will send down the showers in their season and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit and the earth shall yield its increase and they shall be secure in the land. And they shall know that I am Yahweh when I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who have enslaved them. They shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely and none shall make them afraid. I will provide for them renewed plantations and they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I, Yahweh, their God, with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord Yahweh. And you are my sheep, human sheep, he says, of my pasture. I am your God, declares the Lord Yahweh. Now this prophecy was perfectly fulfilled in Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of David, the good shepherd, when all the nations of the world were going to be restored by the redeeming work of Christ on the cross and brought back into God's covenant family. Now let's jump over to Ezekiel 37 for a minute. In 37, 19 and 21, he uses this text also. Say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the tribes of Israel associated with them, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick. All right. Remember, the tribes have been separated. The, the northern tribes are scattered all over the world. And God's saying, I'm going to take the tribes. I'm going to bring them back together that they may be one in my hand when the sticks on which you write in your hand before their eyes. Then say to them, thus says the Lord Yahweh, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. So he says, I'm going to take all these people that are scattered, I'm going to bring them back to their land. He says, bring them back into their own land. This is the restoration of the tribes of Israel. He is talking here about the end of the exile. This is the bringing in of the new covenant and the kingdom of God. This is the tribes being reunited. And John sees these prophecies of the gathering of Israel being fulfilled in the followers of Yeshua. Now, our dispensationalist friends are still waiting for all this to happen because they don't see it as already happened. But he's, this is the prophecy of Yeshua. He's going to bring the people back. Look at John 10, 16. All right, Yeshua talking again to the religious leaders. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. Does that sound like what we just read? I have other sheep. He said they're not of this fold. This verse takes us back to the first five verses of chapter 10. And there the sheep pen represents Judaism. All right, all the Jews. And Yeshua says he calls his own sheep out of Judaism, thereby constituting his own flock. The sheep that remain in that pen are the unbelieving Jews. Now, if Yeshua has other sheep that are not of this sheep pen, that's a reference to us, Gentiles, non-Jews. It's an allusion to Isaiah 56, 6-8 through that says this, And the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh, to minister to Him, to love the name of Yahweh, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast My covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in the house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifice will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Okay, not just Jews. The Lord Yahweh, who gathers the outcasts of Israel, declares, 
I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. Alright? So I'm going to gather others. Now, the others here are Gentiles who will be gathered into the Messiah's flock along with the restored sheep of Israel. And this recalls the mission of the Son in John 3.16 where He says He's going to save the world, not just Jews, but Gentiles also. It goes beyond the nation of Israel. That's what He meant by the world. I'm going to save more than just Israel. In John 11, 51 and 52, it says, He did not say this of His own accord, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Yeshua would die for the nation. That was going to happen, right? But watch what He says. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one children of God who are scattered abroad. So He's going to gather all these Gentiles in with the Jews. So it's not just for the nation of Israel to be gathered, but for all the children of God. And Yeshua says, there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now people, there are plenty of Bible teachers today who deny this. John Hagee being one of them. Okay? One flock, one shepherd. They say there are two distinct purposes of God and two distinct peoples of God. God has an earthly people that they say are the Jews and God has a heavenly people who are the Christians and they're two separate people and they have separate covenants and God says there's going to be one flock. Only one shepherd over that flock. Alright? Notice that Yeshua, the good shepherd, says, I have other sheep. Now, notice here He doesn't say I'm going to get some more sheep. I'm going to get some other sheep. He says, I have other sheep. Not I will have. It's I have other sheep. So who are these sheep that he already has? Well, the Gospel of John makes it pretty plain that one of the important truths is that the Father has already given certain individuals to the Son. So he says, I have other sheep. Let me show you this. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Now, if you compare the couple of verses up in in John here, you'll see that coming to Him and believing in Him are synonymous. So He says, all that the Father gives me will believe in me. And whoever believes in me, I will not cast out. So, who is it that comes to the Father? Who is it that comes to Christ? It's those, the ones the Father had given to Him. That's who comes. All the Father gives me will come. So if the Father hasn't given them, they're not going to come. Look at John 17. This is Christ's high priestly prayer. When Yeshua had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You, since You have given authority to all flesh to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. So Christ gives eternal life to those that the Father has given to Him. And this is eternal life, He says, that they know You, the only true God. Yeshua, the Christ, whom You have sent. And then Yeshua says this down in verse 6, I have manifest Your name to the people who You gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and You gave them to Me. And they have kept Your word. See, God had chosen these sheep for Himself. They were yours, He said, and you gave them to the Son. You gave them to Me. So when Yeshua says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, He's referring to those who are not in the fold of Judaism. He says He has them not because they are already believers in Him, but because they have been given to Him by the Father. It is an eternal gift of the Father to the Son, and that seals the title of the Lord Yeshua to the sheep. They've been given Him. The fact that they are given to Him by the Father is a really important thing. All right, They will come to Him in history. They will come to Him in time. They will hear the Gospel and respond by believing because they're His sheep. They've been given to Him. Ezekiel 37.21 says, Then say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. So I'm going to gather these people, 
I'm going to bring them back to their own land. Now, let me ask you something. Was this fulfilled? When was this fulfilled? The dispensationalists will say, no, it's not fulfilled yet. The nations are still scattered. They're still all out there. It is my position this was fulfilled in A.D. 70 at the consummation of the New Covenant, but the gathering started when? Pentecost. Pentecost. All these Jews came to Jerusalem at Pentecost, and what happens? They hear the Gospel. And then what do they do? They go back to their wherever they were coming from. Remember, they came from all over to come. And it's listed there in Acts chapter 2 where they came from. Alright? They're all there to hear the Gospel. They get saved. They go back and they start sharing the Gospel. And they're sharing it with Jews and Gentiles. And people from all nations are being drawn into the family of God. Ezekiel 37.26 says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. This is a reference to the New Covenant. So, if the New Covenant is an everlasting covenant, how long do you think it will last? <laughs> do you think an everlasting covenant could have last days? End times? How do you have end times of a covenant that doesn't end? Okay? The last days, the end times, were of the Old Covenant. I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them. Now, he's not talking here about the physical land of Jerusalem. He's talking about the new heavens and new earth, which is the spiritual land that the children of God are going to. And will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. Does that remind you of any Scripture? Anything come to mind when you hear that? What is it? Hmm? This is Revelation 21. I'm going to dwell with the people, right? The new covenant. That's what he's saying. I'm going to set my sanctuary in the midst. In other words, I will be there with them. I'm going to dwell with them. I will be their God. They will be my people. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is set in the midst forevermore. At 8070, God came and indwelt the church. Because the building was complete. In Ephesians 2, it says the building was growing. It was making progress to be a habitation of God in the Spirit. That building was completed in AD 70 and God moved in. Now, how has the promise that Yahweh's sanctuary will be with His people forever fulfilled in Christ? Well, it's fulfilled in Christ because Christ is the new temple. The body of the risen Christ is the spiritual temple from which the living waters of salvation flow. Yeshua Himself and His body, the church, are the true temple. People, listen. We are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians 3. We are sacred space. You know, people, you go to your church and you say, well, that, go in the sanctuary. Let me tell you something, people. We are the sanctuary. We are the dwelling place of God. God indwells His people in the New Covenant. We're sacred space. We're holy ground. In this context of Yeshua's ministry, the thieves and the robbers are the religious leaders who are no more interested in taking care of the sheep. They're fleecing the sheep. They don't nurture them. They're not caring for them. They're not guarding them. And Yeshua looks upon the Pharisees before Him as the kind of shepherds Ezekiel had condemned. And He's basically taking that passage and saying, I'm the shepherd. I'm the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34 and 37. You are the, also the fulfillment that you are the bad shepherds that are not caring for God's people and God is done with you. And if you compare the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Tanakh, you compare it to Ezekiel 34 and Ezekiel 37 with the Greek of John 10. There's over a dozen vocabulary connections between John 10 and Ezekiel 34 and 37. In Ezekiel, God rebukes the leaders of Israel. In John, that role is fulfilled by Yeshua rebuking the religious leaders. In Ezekiel, God leads and saves the sheep. But in John 10, it's Yeshua who says, 
I will seek. I will save the sheep. He is the fulfillment of that passage. So let me say this again. Apart from understanding the Tanakh, you will never completely understand the New Testament. These texts are loaded when you understand the background. When you see where he's quoting from, and most of your Bibles will give you some kind of hint that they're quoting from the Tanakh. Like I said, I like the New American Standard. puts it all in bold. You have no doubt, okay, and they miss some texts, okay? But they got a lot of the text. And then you can say, oh, this comes from there. Then you go back and read that passage and say, this is where he's quoting. What's the history? What's going on here? You just get a fuller picture. You know, in John 10, Yeshua didn't just walk up and say, hey, I'm the shepherd of the sheep, and they go, oh, that's cool. You know, no, he's coming from Ezekiel. He's coming from Numbers 27. And he's saying, listen, I'm the replacement. I'm Yeshua. I'm Yahweh saves. And I am the great shepherd. I'm the fulfillment of those prophecies. The writers of the New Testament all suppose that their readers understood the Tanakh. And Yeshua's, these Jewish leaders, they did. They knew what he, where He was coming from. They didn't get it because they didn't understand it. And if we don't understand the language of the first three quarters of the Bible, we're never going to get the last quarter. We're going to miss so much. So please, please don't unhitch the Tanakh from your Bible. And please don't ignore the Tanakh because, as Christ said, it speaks of Him. The Bible is one book. So I'm begging you, get familiar with it. The Bible study that we have listed on the website takes you through part of the Tanakh, then it takes you to Psalms, then Proverbs, then the New Testament. So every day you're reading a little from the Tanakh, a little from Psalms, a little from Proverbs. I like that because other translations, you're spending nine months in the Tanakh, and then you get to the New Testament. And I think it's good to mix it up. Okay? For me, anyway. Alright? But there's, I don't care how you read it, just get familiar with it. And people, it will get to the point when you're reading something in Paul and you go, hey, I just read that from Isaiah. You know, and you go back and you see he's quoting from this. Or you'll be reading through the Tanakh and you go, didn't Paul say that? And you flip over, oh yeah, Paul said that. And the Bible just becomes one book. And the more years you read it, the more you get familiar with it. And the reason this is so important is because the Bible is the self-revelation of God. This is what this book's about. It's revealing God to us. And people, there is no greater endeavor in all the world than to understand and walk in fellowship with your God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, there's so, it's so rich, Lord. There's so much treasure here. As Proverbs 2 says, Lord, may we search for it as for buried treasure. May we dig into the word of God like we're looking for silver or gold. Father, thank you so much for the day and age in which we live that there's so many study aids. There's so many helps out there that we can learn from and grow. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us with that. I pray we'd be diligent Bereans, Lord, that we'd make use of the time you've given us to dig into the Word of God, to come to know you, Lord, in an intimate way that we may walk in fellowship with you. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen. When Paul the Apostle was beaten for preaching the Gospel, and then put into the inner prison and locked in stocks, his response was to, hey, let's sing. Why? Because he was in fellowship with God. And it didn't matter where he was or what was happening to him because he knew God had brought him there. And so he rejoiced in his circumstances. All right, questions, comments? Is that, are you scratching your head or are you at, <laughs> you can't remember how to answer it? Oh.
Maybe. Well, here's the thing. You can maybe be a teenager and hear, read the Scriptures and read the Gospel and you're like, right over your head, right? And then maybe later on you read it and all of a sudden, because God gives you life, boom, until you have life. Dead men don't get it. Dead men do not understand. All right, I got a text from Bob. Bob said, we miss many of the allusions of the Tanakh because we're accustomed to footnotes and chapter and verse references. They didn't have either. <laughs> this is how they did it back then. Good stuff. See, and what he's saying there is they knew the text so well because they, there wasn't a, you know, a chapter and verse. They couldn't say, this is verse 10. So they were just familiar with the whole thing. They knew this. And they would know where to look in the scroll for it. You know, when the Lord's in the temple and they hand him the scroll and he turns to the spot, how did he do that? Because he knew the Scripture and so he knew where it was. They were familiar with it. And that's the problem today. I really believe that's the biggest problem with Christianity. We're not familiar with the Bible. That's why there's so many people teaching so many whacked out things and people are nodding and going, Amen, Amen. We don't know the Bible. If you know it... You're going to say, you know, your computer's going to be turned. No, no, that doesn't sound right. That's not right. No. So agreeing on that confirmation, but they're just agreeing with what they hear. Not really. Well, yeah, if you know the scripture and you hear something, you can evaluate. But listen, let me warn you here. Be a Berean. And when you hear something, you say, that sounds whacked. Don't reject it until you study it, or unless you have enough scripture in your head already. You know, if you've got enough foundation there, right away you know, boom, that's... Okay, you hear John Hagee speak about, oh, God's got a separate covenant with the Jews. And I'm like, ding, 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 all these bells are going up. That means, that means, people, the Jews don't need Christ. That sounds a little different from the New Testament Scripture, doesn't it? Who was Yeshua preaching to? Jews! And yet Hagee says the Jews he was preaching the gospel to didn't need that gospel because they already have a different covenant with God. Wow. And listen, and he's got a church full of people that amen him like crazy. And I'm like, well, you better stop amen and say, wait a second. Wait a second. No, no, that doesn't line up at all. So what? Stan? What he's saying was Christ was wrong to preach that Christ made a mistake. I guess he didn't need to do that because they got a covenant. And I'm like... For the first 10 years of the church, it was all Jewish. And they didn't even need any of that. Stan? Uh, I think it was on Twitter I got into with this one, well, there was a bunch, but this one lady, and I started talking, you know, they're talking about the end times. So I gave them our view, <laughs> and uh, guess what verse they came back with? No man knows the day of the hour. No the day of the Lord is a thousand years. No boys. Oh. <laughs> yeah. And just like you said, just because you disagree on the end times, you know, but I wasn't. So the, what were they saying? You weren't a sheep? Yep. Or they weren't. Yeah, Babe, I just got that. Okay. Somebody just texted to me. All right, so my wife's texting me. Uh, <laughs> someone texts her. How would you answer those who claim that preterism is replacement theology? Her name is June. Okay, June, good question. It's not replacement theology, it's fulfillment theology, okay? We are the fulfillment of the promises God made to Israel. We've got several things on the website that you can go in and look at, and we deal with that kind of stuff. Matter of fact, June, if you go to our website, and in the search engine, put in replacement theology, it'll bring up a bunch of things that you can look into. But this is fulfillment theology. We are the fulfillment. As we just showed you, Christ was the fulfillment of that good shepherd. Okay? He led his sheep he to the sheep. What? He was the replacement. Yes. Christ is the replacement. He is the true Israel. He's the fulfillment of what Israel messed up, didn't fulfill. Okay. One quick one. I think I brought this up before, but I think it's J. Philip Keller, and he was a shepherd, and he just, uh, I guess the picture, the word picture was great because he, I think the book was uh, Shepherd Looks Shepherd at Psalm. Shepherd Looks at 23rd Psalm, yeah, familiar with that. Very good. But again, 
that's how most people handle the whole shepherd concept. But I want you to understand that this is Yeshua saying, I'm Yahweh. Okay? You might not see that in John 10, but when you go back to the text he's quoting, you get, he's saying, I am who I am, who I am and I am the great shepherd. So, fulfillment. 